Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton Part 1 On the Creature Called Man Chapter 6 The Demons and the Philosophers Part 2 In any case, it is clear enough that the painted and gilded civilization of tropical America systematically indulged in human sacrifice. It is by no means clear, so far as I know, that the Eskimos ever indulged in human sacrifice. They were not civilized enough. They were too closely imprisoned by the white winter and the endless dark. Chill penury repressed their noble rage and froze the genial current of the soil. It was in brighter days and broader daylight that the noble rage is found unmistakably raging. It was in richer and more instructed lands that the genial current flowed on the altars to be drunk by great gods wearing goggling and grinning masks and called on in terror or torment by long cacophonous names that sound like laughter in hell. A warmer climate and a more scientific cultivation were needed to bring forth these blooms, to draw up towards the sun the large leaves and flamboyant blossoms that gave their gold and crimson and purple to that garden, which Swinburne compares to the Hesperides. There was, at least, no doubt about the dragon. I do not raise in this connection the special controversy about Spain and Mexico, but I may remark in passing that it resembles exactly the question that must in some sense be raised afterwards about Rome and Carthage. In both cases, there has been a queer habit among the English of always siding against the Europeans and representing the rival civilization, in Swinburne's phrase, as sinless when its sins were obviously crying or rather screaming to heaven. For Carthage also was a high civilization. Indeed, a much more highly civilized civilization. And Carthage also founded that civilization on a religion of fear, sending up everywhere the smoke of human sacrifice. Now, it is very right to rebuke our own race or religion for falling short of our own standards and ideals. But, it is absurd to pretend that they fell lower than the other races and religions that professed the very opposite standards and ideals. There is a very real sense in which the Christian is worse than the heathen, the Spaniard worse than the Red Indian, or even the Roman potentially worse than the Carthaginian. But there is only one sense in which he is worse, and that is not in being positively worse. The Christian is only worse because it is his business to be better. This inverted imagination produces things of which it is better not to speak. Some of them, indeed, might almost be named without being known, for they are of that extreme evil which seems innocent to the innocent. They are too inhuman even to be indecent. But without dwelling much longer in these dark corners, it may be noted as not irrelevant here that certain anti-human antagonisms seem to recur in this tradition of black magic. There may be suspected as running through it everywhere, for instance, a mystical hatred of the idea of childhood. 
people would understand better the popular fury against the witches, if they remembered that the malice most commonly attributed to them was preventing the birth of children. The Hebrew prophets were perpetually protesting against the Hebrew race relapsing into an idolatry that involved such a war upon children. And it is probable enough that this abominable apostasy from the God of Israel has occasionally appeared in Israel since, in the form of what is called ritual murder. Not, of course, by any representative of the religion of Judaism, but by individual and irresponsible diabolists who did happen to be Jews. This sense that the forces of evil especially threaten childhood is found again in the enormous popularity of the child martyr of the Middle Ages. Chaucer did but give another version of a very national English legend when he conceived the wickedest of all possible witches as the dark alien woman watching behind her high lattice and hearing, like the babble of a brook down the stony street, the singing of little St. Hugh. Anyhow, the part of such speculations that concerns this story centered especially round that eastern end of the Mediterranean where the nomads had turned gradually into traders and had begun to trade with the whole world. Indeed, in the sense of trade and travel and colonial extension, it already had something like an empire of the whole world. Its purple dye, the emblem of its rich pomp and luxury, had steeped the wares which were sold far away amid the last crags of Cornwall and the sails that entered the silence of tropic seas amid all the mystery of Africa. It might be said truly to have painted the map purple. It was already a worldwide success when the princes of Tyre would hardly have troubled to notice that one of their princesses had condescended to marry the chief of some tribe called Judah when the merchants of its African outpost would only have curled their bearded and Semitic lips with a slight smile at the mention of a village called Rome. And indeed, no two things could have seemed more distant from each other, not only in space but in spirit, than the monotheism of the Palestinian tribe and the very virtues of the small Italian republic. There was but one thing between them, and the thing which divided them has united them. Very various and incompatible were the things that could be loved by the consuls of Rome and the prophets of Israel, but they were at one in what they hated. It is very easy in both cases to represent that hatred as something merely hateful. It is easy enough to make a merely harsh and inhuman figure, either of Elijah, raving above the slaughter of Carmel, or Cato, thundering against the amnesty of Africa. These men had their limitations and their local passions, but this criticism of them is unimaginative and therefore unreal. It leaves out something, something immense and intermediate, facing east and west and calling up this passion in its eastern and western enemies. And that something is the first subject of this chapter. The civilization that centered in Tyre and Sidon was above all things practical. It has left little in the way of art and nothing in the way of poetry, but it prided itself upon being very efficient, and it followed in its philosophy and religion that strange and sometimes secret train of thought, which we have already noted in those who look for immediate effects. There is always in such a mentality an idea that there is a shortcut to the secret of all success, something that would shock the world by this sort of shameless thoroughness. They believed, in the appropriate modern phrase, 
in people who delivered the goods. In their dealings with their god Moloch, they themselves were always careful to deliver the goods. It was an interesting transaction, upon which we shall have to touch more than once in the rest of the narrative. It is enough to say here that it involved the theory I have suggested about a certain attitude towards children. This was what called up against it, in simultaneous fury, the servant of one god in Palestine and the guardians of all the household gods in Rome. This is what challenged two things naturally, so much divided by every sort of distance and disunion, whose union was to save the world. I have called the fourth and final division of the spiritual elements into which I should divide heathen humanity by the name of the philosophers. I confess that it covers in my mind much that would generally be classified otherwise, and that what are here called philosophies are very often called religions. I believe, however, that my own description will be found to be much the more realistic, and not the less respectful. But we must first take philosophy in its purest and clearest form, that we may trace its normal outline, and that is to be found in the world of the purest and clearest outlines, that culture of the Mediterranean of which we have been considering the mythologies and idolatries in the last two chapters. Polytheism, or that aspect of paganism, was never to the pagan what Catholicism is to the Catholic. It was never a view of the universe satisfying all sides of life, a complete and complex truth with something to say about everything. It was only a satisfaction of one side of the soul of man, even if we call it the religious side. And I think it is truer to call it the imaginative side, but this it did satisfy. In the end, it satisfied it to satiety. All that world was a tissue of interwoven tales and cults, and there ran in and out of it, as we have already seen, that black thread among its more blameless colors. The darker paganism, that was really diabolism. But we all know that this did not mean that all pagan men thought of nothing but pagan gods. Precisely because mythology only satisfied one mood, they turned in other moods to something totally different. But it is very important to realize that it was totally different. It was too different to be inconsistent. It was so alien that it did not clash. While a mob of people were pouring on a public holiday to the Feast of Adonis, or the games in honor of Apollo, this or that man would prefer to stop at home and think out a little theory about the nature of things. Sometimes his hobby would even take the form of thinking about the nature of God or even, in that sense, about the nature of the gods. But he very seldom thought of pitting his nature of the gods against the gods of nature. It is necessary to insist on this abstraction in the first student of abstractions. He was not so much antagonistic as absent-minded. His hobby might be the universe. But at first the hobby was as private as if it had been numismatics or playing drafts. And even when his wisdom came to be a public possession, and almost a political institution, it was very seldom on the same plane as the popular and religious institutions. Aristotle, with his colossal common sense, was perhaps the greatest of all philosophers, certainly the most practical of all philosophers. But Aristotle would no more have set up the absolute side by side with the Apollo of Delphi as a similar or rival religion then Archimedes would have thought of setting up the lever as a sort of idol or fetish to be substituted for the palladium of the city. 
Or we might as well imagine Euclid building an altar to an isosceles triangle, or offering sacrifices to the square on the hypotenuse. The one man meditated on metaphysics, as the other man did on mathematics. For the love of truth, or for curiosity, or for the fun of the thing. But that sort of fun never seems to have interfered very much with the other sort of fun. The fun of dancing, or singing, to celebrate some rascally romance about Zeus becoming a bull, or a swan. It is perhaps the proof of a certain superficiality, and even insincerity about the popular polytheism, that men could be philosophers, and even skeptics, without disturbing it. These thinkers could move the foundations of the world without altering even the outline of that colored cloud that hung above it in the air. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>